For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Tonight we're going to talk about a topic that contains particular relevance for many of us. And if we're not in the midst of suffering, will contain significance in the future. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1 through 10, which I entitled, Power Perfected in Weakness, which comes directly from the text of 2 Corinthians, as we'll see. Now, to give a little bit of context, Paul feels forced to do something he finds both unprofitable and personally distasteful. He involves himself in boasting in the Lord. And he starts all the way in chapter 11 and continues <clears throat> on into chapter 12. Now, one of the things that was happening was that there were these false apostles who came into the city of Corinth after he had led many people to a relationship with Christ, and they were critiquing Paul and his credentials and boasting about their own, about their own and therefore implying that he didn't have the kind of respect that they should um, listen to or that, that, that would require them to listen to him. And so he engages in boasting by talking about all the things that he experienced and all of the things that he had done for Christ that made him worth listening to. If you look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. So apparently, they were setting the agenda. <clears throat> and they were saying, we're Jews. And Paul's like, so am I. He's like, uh, I'm also one of Abraham's de descendants. And so he's matching them for e in, at each one of their credentials. He goes on and gives a long list of suffering to validate his ministry. He says in 11, 23 through 28, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to even talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, have been in prison more frequently, have been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and night in the open sea. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles, in danger from in the city, in the country, in the sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Whew. That's quite a list. I mean, most of the time when we feel like we're suffering, it's because our phone is on low battery and we can't find our charger. <laughs> and yet, Paul says, I'm going to continue to boast. And that really sets the stage for chapter 12. He says in verse 1, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations for the, from the Lord. So, these false apostles set the agenda. The Corinthians accepted it, and so he goes on to the next item in this list. He talks about visions and revelations. <clears throat> he says in verse 2 through 4, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. 
Whether it was in the body or out of body, I do not know. Only God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows. I was caught up in a paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. So it becomes clear later on that this was talking about, or that Paul uh, was talking about himself, even though he refers to himself in this section in the third person. He says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing great revelations I've received. So Paul was very reluctant to talk about this revelation that he received. Um, Indeed, he says that they are inexpressible. In in other words, that uh, he was unable to even put into words, it outran the limitation of human language for him to speak about what he saw. And that God did not permit him to speak about it. He, God actually prohibited him from talking about it, that it was only for him. And <clears throat> he says that he was caught up. It's interesting that this word in Greek is the word harapazo. It means to be taken or grabbed. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, where he describes how some believers at the end of the age will be caught up to meet Christ in the air. So apparently, he had some sort of experience like this where God transported him into the heavenly realm. He wasn't even sure if it was bodily. It was so overwhelming. He says in verse 5 and 6, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even, I should, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I say or do. You can sense Paul and his reluctance to express all these things that he has done or he has seen because he doesn't want to stoop to the level of these false apostles by boasting about his credentials. He says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there, were, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So <clears throat> apparently, Paul didn't think that he was great because he experienced this incredible revelation. He saw his greatness in that God gave him this thorn in the flesh that made him weak which allowed God's power to move through him. And it's not really clear what this thorn in the flesh represents. He says that it's a messenger of Satan, so it's not something that God directly gave to him. Contrary to what most people think, suffering isn't something that God does to you. He doesn't cause you suffering, but he may allow suffering into your lives because he knows that he can work good in it even though it's terribly painful. This thorn in the flesh, it's very confusing. The word that Paul uses describes something like a splinter or a stake. I mean, there's a wide range of meaning here, but either way, it was incredibly painful, and it was an ailment that plagued him really throughout his ministry. Some people, like John Calvin, the 1500s French theologian, believe that Paul was talking about spiritual opposition that he faced 
throughout his ministry. Others like Martin Luther believe that Paul was talking about a vicious human attack and persecution. Still others think that it's probably a physical ailment that Paul had. We know that he traveled all throughout the ancient world, so it might be that he was facing malaria. He, he may have contracted that numerous times. Others believe that maybe it was some sort of ailment or illness that caused him to have problems with his eyesight. In Galatians 4, verse 15, Paul talks about how um, if you, speaking to the Galatians, could have done so, you would have torn your own eyes out and given them to me, talking about their love for him. So apparently, he had some problems seeing. So either way, it's not really clear what Paul was suffering from, but it was causing him quite a bit of pain and agony throughout his life. And it may be that Paul was being a little bit vague because he wants his audience to be able to identify with him and his struggles. Really, I think a thorn in the flesh may take many different forms. For some of us, it might be a debilitating physical ailment. Maybe it's an ongoing disease that causes us lots of pain. Or maybe an injury that we're still healing from months or years after the injury. It could be witnessing a loved one suffer over a prolonged period of time. Maybe our loved one, our family member has nobody else to turn to and so we have become the primary caretaker of our loved one who's hurting. Could be bad circumstances pressing in on us from all sides. You know how that is? It almost feels like Nothing is going right in your life. You get into a car crash. An unexpected bill comes in. You don't have money for it. The death of a loved one. All of those things happen in a short period of time and it feels like the walls are falling in on you. It could also be periods of depression and severe anxiety. Some of us struggle with waves of depression that hit us. And these can be very painful. Oftentimes, these mental ailments that we have cause us more pain than some of our physical ones, in part because it's a little bit embarrassing to admit that you're feeling depressed or that you're feeling anxious. C.S. Lewis observes, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and also harder to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. So the desire to suffer in silence about our mental problems, our mental ailments, may actually add to the suffering and prolong it. It could be loneliness. We feel like we have no one to turn to. It could be that you know, we feel lonely romantically where all of our friends are dating and we're just, you know, sitting there single and we feel bad about ourselves. Maybe all of our friends are getting married and we think to ourselves, when, when am I going to get married? It could be relational pain caused by family or friends. You know, a lot of us have grown up in a broken home and we have these negative patterns of relating to our loved ones, our family members, and so... When we spend time with our family, it just always follows the same cycle. And we come out of there feeling distressed. 
You know, when we look at all these different ailments which represent thorns, I think there are a lot of ways to respond to these thorns. One is self-pity. You feel bad about yourself. It describes when we feel sorry for ourselves because we're not getting what we think we deserve. There's a sense of entitlement that comes from it that we deserve better. In addition to that, it expresses itself in self-centeredness. You know, when we enter the vortex of self-pity, a lot of times we turn inward and we enlarge the problems that we have so that they magnify to the point where we can't see anybody else's needs except for our own. And so we're caught up in this vicious cycle of just self-centeredness. It makes Thanksgiving impossible in many cases because we're so fixated, we're ruminating over the problems that we can't take our eyes off of that for even just a moment to be able to see the larger picture of what God's doing in our lives, the incredible blessing that he's giving us. William Farley says, self-pity is a vacuum into which gratitude cannot enter. In fact, self-pity and thanksgiving cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. Although thanksgiving is the antidote to this poison, few bound by self-pity will take the foray into expressing thanks for all the blessings they do have. It's easier to remain in the status quo and verbalize the gloom and doom of life's existence. Can you relate to that? I can. Or you're just stuck in this hole of self-pity. For others, it might be discouragement. We might feel like, you know, God, I've been so faithful to, tr- to serving you. I've been following you despite all of the bad things that have happened in my life. And yet you're letting this happen to me again? And so we feel discouraged. We think to ourselves, have I just wasted my time here? And those who succumb to this discouragement, this despair, oftentimes end up stepping out of the race. For some of us, it might be stoicism, where we just, we just act like we have this Teflon coating on us, and suffering and grief, it just bounces right off of us. We just decide we're not going to think about it. You know, when you look at Job's response to suffering in the Old Testament, it's very interesting. Calamity strikes him. And Job loses his health, he loses his family, he loses all of his possessions. And what does Job do? Job tears his clothes, he shaves his head, and he screams out loud. And yet, many Christians, I think, if they saw someone suffering like that, they'd think to themselves, this guy's lost his faith. He's completely coming unhinged. And yet, it's interesting that in the book of Job, the author says, in all of these things, Job sinned not. That his response to suffering was actually consonant with rejoicing in suffering, which is very interesting. Really, I think stoicism contains two forms. Could be flat-out denial where we just pretend that we're not suffering, it's not that big of a deal, and we try to fix our eyes on something else instead of really dealing with the suffering and going through the process of grief. 
For others, it's destroying the part of your heart that cares about the thing in jeopardy. We say to ourselves, well, I used to want that thing. I used to really care about that thing, but I've grown up and it doesn't really matter to me anymore. Stoicism can get you through things, but the real problem is that you'll end up lacking compassion when encountering other people who are also facing suffering. That's one of the real insidious things about stoicism. It gets you through suffering, but a part of you has to sort of die. And you'll find that people will be reluctant to come to you when they're, they're suffering, even though you might consider yourself a strong person. What about masochism? You know, I, I like the suffering. It's, this is my life. This is my lot. You know, some of us take this and formulate it in maybe a Descartian form. Our philosophy is, I suffer, therefore I am. I have problems, therefore I'm deep and my life is filled with meaning. You know, some of us, we talk about how, oh, I don't even want to express how much I'm suffering because nobody would truly understand what I'm going through, the deep grief that I feel. And there's, some, there's a seductive quality, I think, about this way of thinking where we tell ourselves, I'm suffering, and so nobody understands me. I'm special. It's interesting that Paul, in Romans 5, verse 13, when he talks about suffering, he says, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Notice, he doesn't say, we rejoice for our sufferings. He wasn't happy that he was encountering persecution. He wasn't happy that people were reviling him when he would go into a city. He wasn't rejoicing for his sufferings. And he he doesn't say that we rejoice in spite of our sufferings. He didn't detach himself from suffering. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Is that even possible? To be able to find joy in the midst of true suffering? Well, as we'll see, the Bible gives us a basis for joy in the midst of suffering. And that's not the same as happiness, where we're laughing about the problems in our lives, but that there is this sense of trust in God and what He can do even in the situation that seems desperate. You know, being a Christian allows you to face reality, allows you to make sense of senseless suffering. You know, when you look at uh, our world today, people suffer, and they don't understand why. There's no real reason behind it. It feels senseless, and yet, one of the incredible things that I discovered about Christianity when I started following God was that God can take even the worst kind of suffering and use it for redemptive purposes. And that's not just theoretical. I've seen this happen in people's lives. I've seen it happen in my own life. Another response might be insisting upon knowing why. That's the first question that pops pops up into our mind when we're suffering. Why is this happening to me? And... I think it's interesting that sometimes our why may subtly shift into a how. God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting this happen to me? Into how could you let this happen to me? How could you allow suffering to come into my life 
even though I have been trying to follow you faithfully. And so it becomes an indictment upon his character. What about this one? Our why may quickly turn into an if, where we feel accusation about ourselves. Where we say, you know, why is this happening? That quickly turns into, if I had only done this differently, then things might have turned out another way. Maybe this person wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten hurt. And sooner or later, these what ifs turn into an accusation about our character. You're so reckless. It was inevitable that this thing was gonna happen. And so we find that God's enemy, the evil one, actually accuses our identity, the core of who we are, and tries to identify the blame with this character flaw in our lives. I think turning back to this example about Job's quest to find out, find out why, I think is really interesting. You know, when you study his story, he goes through all of this suffering, and then what happens is Job's comforters, his friends, show up to spend time with him, to sit with him in grief. And during his conversation with these comforters, Job fixates upon this question that comes up in, a, in their conversation. If God would only let me ask him some questions, he would know that he got it all wrong, that he sent suffering upon the wrong person. So it's interesting that this whole dialogue between Job and his comforter centers around this. And finally, God shows up in the whirlwind and he starts asking him all these questions. He says, look, I'll answer your question, but you have to answer a few of mine first. And he just hits him with like two chapters worth of questions. Questions that Job can't answer. He's like, have you ever heard of this sea animal? And he's like, no. He's like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> he's like, have you, have you ever seen a, a lynx on the top of a, a snow-capped mountain? Job's like, what's snow? He's like, that's what I thought. <laughs> and so after hitting him with a barrage of these questions... Finally, Job says this, Job 42, verse five, he says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears have heard of you, but my eyes have now seen you. And that's the end of the narrative. Guess what? Job never gets the answer to his question. And I think that's intriguing because it speaks a lot about the way that God answers our why. You know, when God gives us an answer to the problem of suffering, to the reason why we are suffering, it's, it's not really a reason, it's a person, it's himself. To put it another way, when God gives us an answer to the problem of pain and suffering, it's not something, it's someone. Job realized in the course of God asking him all of these questions that he could not answer, that God was wise, that he knew the course of history, that he had all of this stuff mapped out, even though he didn't understand it. Several years ago, a close friend of mine who was in the college group died. He lost his uh, battle with cancer that he had been fighting for 10 years. He died at age 26. 
And I remember the week before he died, I visited him in the hospital, and I, I was taking a class on the book of Job, and I stumbled upon this insight, and I was really excited to share it with him. And so I was explaining, I said, you know, at the end of the book of Job, as it climaxes, God asks him all these different questions, and finally Job says, I don't need an answer. And I said, do you know how the story ends? And he said, he just cut me off. He said, Job never gets that answer. You know, my friend never got the answer to why he struggled with cancer for 10 years of his life. I'm sure he asked that question many times, why? And yet now that he's in the presence of God, I'm sure that that question is irrelevant. You know, God can take even the worst tragedy and use it for his redemptive purposes. You know, God, he doesn't use other people's tragedy as an object lesson for us to look at. The Bible says that God actually took on human form and experienced firsthand in the man Jesus Christ and he died in order to redeem the entire human race. That's really the message of Christianity. If you're here tonight, you know, the Bible is not about rules. It's not about you cleaning up your life. It's not about you earning your way to heaven. It's about what God has done for you. And it's interesting because I'm sure that the disciples, as they were standing at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus writhing moments before his death, and then burying him, and grieving for three days, they were completely confused. And yet, God, even in the midst of this senseless, unjust suffering, was able to produce the greatest act of redemption history has ever known. And in the same way, if God could do something like that through what Jesus endured, he certainly can do something through the suffering you are experiencing right now. You know, God often doesn't give us an answer because it's beyond our comprehension to grasp the full picture. I told this story, I don't know, a year ago, so if you were there, you're gonna have to endure it again. But um, my son Julius and I, we, we spend weekly time together, and I usually take him out somewhere. And um, <clears throat> when he was very young, what I would do is um, I would take him to McDonald's down on campus and we would get a $1 parfait and we would just walk through campus. Did that every week for like a year, right? I remember the first time we did that, I was like trying to get him hyped up, like, all right, Julius, we're gonna do something special. He's like, what's that? And I'm like, we're gonna go to a place called McDonald's and we're gonna get a parfait. <laughs> and you know what he said? He said, who's old McDonald? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's McDonald's. It's, it's a fast food chain that's largely responsible for obesity in America. <laughs> and you know, he just would ask me these questions. He's like, where is it? What's a parfait? And I'm like, never mind, right? I'm not gonna answer any more of your questions. And finally, as, as we were driving there and he was just asking me these nonstop questions, I was just like, look, when we get there, it's gonna be awesome, right? I promise you. I was like, do you trust me that it's gonna be great? And he's like, I trust you. 
And you know, in the same way, I think that a lot of times we ask God a lot of questions, especially in the midst of suffering. Why is this happening to me? And it doesn't matter whether or not we get the answer because sometimes it's beyond our comprehension to be able to see the big picture. It doesn't matter if we ever figure out why this is happening. Maybe we'll figure it out years later. Maybe we won't even see it, the answer, until we arrive in heaven. But what matters is he knows where we're going with this. He knows what's happening. I think another response could be fixating on a resolution to our trials. If, if only, you know, I get the right lawyer to help me with this case. If only um, I can get the right kind of job, that will fix this financial problem that, I, that I'm in. Instead of looking to God and trusting in Him to provide for us. He says in verse eight, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh away from me. Paul was no masochist. He said, I pleaded with God three times because it was so painful. And yet God responds, my grace is sufficient for you. You know what that is? It's a no. I'm not taking this away. You know, it raises the question, why would God allow pain to enter into our lives? What's the purpose of pain? I think, first of all, it acts as a warning sensor. You know, for many years, people believed that leprosy was a disease that created ulcers on your extremities and eventually you would lose them. But a pioneer researcher, Dr. Paul Brand, discovered that in 99% of cases, where people have leprosy, it's that they fail to have feeling in their ex- extremities. So he would watch people in different countries dunk their hands into scalding hot water, large iron pots, in order to fish out boiling potatoes, and they weren't even uh, hurt by it, even though their skin would start blistering. You see, pain not only causes us to get our hand out of the boiling water, it also acts as a warning signal to our soul. You know, when we're living a life of hedonism where we're just pleasing our senses, where we're just trying to be as comfortable as we possibly can, it's easy to feel like that's what life is all about. And you know what happens? Suffering enters into our lives and really challenges that philosophy. You know, when we're, when we're living this hedonistic life, we're just eating, drinking as much as we possibly can. It's difficult to do that and to look around the world and to see so many people starving. And in the same way, God will shake us up. He'll help us to realize that this philosophy, this way of life that we're living is bankrupt because it doesn't account for the suffering that will enter our lives. You know, God draws us close through our pain and our suffering. This is especially true for believers. I know that for me, the times when I feel closest to God are the times when I look back and saw that I was experiencing tremendous suffering. You know, it's easy to forget that God's around when life is going pretty well, to not, turn, to, to, not to have to turn to Him or depend on Him. 
And yet when we find ourselves in the grip of suffering, we find ourselves having really honest conversations with God, saying things that could border on irreverence. C.S. Lewis said, we can ignore even pleasure, but our pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Many of us have had this experience where life is going pretty well for us. We're not even thinking about whether God exists. And then suffering enters our lives and we start asking these questions. Why am I here? Why am I going through this? Is there something greater that I'm missing? He says in verse nine, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So God's power always comes to perfection through our weakness. That God can use our weakness, the suffering that we have in our lives in order to empower us and to break open the power to change people's lives and our lives. You know, God can multiply spiritual life through suffering and trial. Look at what Jesus says in John 12, verse 24. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Like six months ago, I was walking with my wife and um, I saw that there was a small acorn on the ground. I picked it up and I thought to myself, this acorn can produce this incredibly large tree. And from that tree, you can produce an entire grove of trees. So you think to yourself, one single acorn can fill an entire continent with trees. But it can't happen unless it dies. And that's what Jesus was saying here. If you want your life to multiply, if you want your life to really matter, to count for something, then you need to submit yourself to this process of life out of death, which implies suffering. That's what Jesus did. He sacrificed his life. And God used that and multiplied it in the lives of other people. You know, God will use our trials and suffering to impact future generations. Think about what Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18. He says, for our present troubles are small. They're not gonna last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. He says, rather we fix our gaze on the things that we cannot see. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul says, look, in comparison to what God is gonna do through your life, this momentary suffering that you're going through is gonna look like nothing in light of eternity. You're gonna be amazed at what God can do through the little suffering that you experienced in this life. I think about the example in Genesis 22. This is where Abraham goes and offers his son Isaac. And um, you know, I try to put myself in Abraham's shoes and that must have been a very difficult thing for God to say 
to him, go and sacrifice your one and only son. And so they walk to this region of Moriah. That must have taken a few days. And so as they get to the base of the mountain, Isaac and Abraham ascend the mountain and Abraham ties up Isaac as a sacrifice and just as he's about to plunge the knife into Isaac, God stops him and says, there's a ram caught in the thicket, sacrifice it instead. And so it provides this incredible picture of God's redemption, how one day he would send his son Jesus as a sacrifice on our behalf. So they quietly descend the mountain and probably tell the people who are in the caravan about what happened, and then for 600 years the story disappears until God reveals it to Moses. You know, that story must have seemed like something very insignificant at the time, particularly because there were very few witnesses to see it. And I think when you look at that story, obviously 4,000 years later, people are shaping their response to suffering based in large part on Abraham's uh, sacrifice. And you know, it might change the way that we respond to suffering if we knew that people one day, thousands of years from now, are gonna look back on our example and see something great about the way we were faithful to God. You know, a lot of times it's a trap for us to think, well, nobody really sees me suffering. It doesn't really matter. I'm insignificant. And so we use that as a justification for selfishness and self-pity. And yet, what the Bible says is that the earth is center stage for this incredible drama that's, that's unfolding. God's plan of salvation and that, and that the entire universe is intently, intensely interested in what's going on here. And so that should change and shape the way that we look at our suffering. Finally, he says in verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, I delight in weaknesses. That sounds really weird. Totally countercultural. How do you delight in your weakness? I think in our culture, it's prized to be strong in the midst of suffering. And yet what Paul says is that we should delight in being weak, just the opposite. Well, I think that one of the things that God aims to do is to build in us a dependence upon him. And I remember an old saying that always stuck with me, trust in God begins where trust in self ends. And really, we haven't trusted God until we can delight in weakness. Where we can come to the place where we realize without God, I would not be able to do this. And guess what? The way that we arrive at that dependence isn't by God giving us more and more success and making sure that we never encounter suffering. If we want true dependence upon God, if we want to learn to trust Him in a personal relationship, then he will have to allow suffering to come into our lives. Okay, let's conclude by looking at some reasons for thorns. I think, first of all, God wants to move his power through us 
without us taking possession of it. You know, he, he wants us to, to see that when he works through us, we're not the ones doing this. He's the one who's doing it. Secondly, these thorns help us learn to trust in God. That's exactly what, what Paul was experiencing. That's exactly why God allowed this thorn to enter into his life, to help him trust in, him, in God, not in himself. And finally, God brings thorns in our lives. He allows them to come into our lives so we can experience his grace. Look at what he says there at the end there. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, you might be suffering tonight and you might be wondering, if God's real, why would he let this happen to me? Why, why, would, why would a loving God allow me to experience this kind of pain? The answer, so that you can experience his grace. Because otherwise, you probably would never have need for God if your life was totally cushy and comfortable. The Bible says that if you simply turn to God and ask for what Jesus did to apply to what you have done, the wrong things you've done, that God will give you a relationship with him and eternal life. And so I would challenge you to think about that. And if you're not ready to make that decision, I, I would encourage you to call out to God and ask him if he's real. Okay, why don't we just spend the remaining time just praying and then we can hang out. We're grateful that the Bible engages real topics like this and gives us real answers. And we know that our culture is just really longing for some of these solutions that the Bible provides. And we thank you that you revealed yourself to us and how you want us to live our lives. And I pray especially for those of us, Lord, who just may sense that you're real but have never really called out to you that just maybe in a moment of honesty we would just say, you know, I don't have it all together and, and I realize that maybe you're out there. Reveal yourself to me. And we believe that you will answer that prayer. We thank you for anyone who prayed it. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.